This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Vincent Call replayed that evening over and over in his head. He was sure he had hit his target. It wasn't the first time he'd done a job like this. It was almost a reflex for him. He had shot Joey Rao, watched him fall, and then driven away. He didn't stay. He never stayed. But the street had turned into a frenzy after Vincent opened fire. A stampede of people running, the deafening echo of bullets. It wasn't until long after he'd left that he found out five children had been caught in the crossfire, and one of them was killed. Little Michael Vingali just five years old. Every time Vincent went over that evening, he could never remember the children passing by. But now he stood accused of murdering one. Vincent turned on the radio. He was in hiding, out of the loop. It seemed like the news reporters knew more about the murder than he did. That night, New York City Mayor Jimmy Walker was giving a press conference. He was condemning Vincent by name calling him a mad dog. Maybe this wasn't the end of Vincent's infamy. Maybe it was just beginning. Hi, I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. This week, we'll continue the story of Vincent Mad Dog Call, one of the most notorious hitmen of the 1930s. We'll talk about the accident that derailed his career and the gruesome murder that ended his life. 
cementing his reputation as one of the most infamous mobsters in New York history. You can listen to previous episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. By the time he was publicly condemned as a mad dog in 1931, 23-year-old Vincent Call had managed to establish himself as the top hitman in New York City. He'd come up under the wing of Dutch Schultz, one of the city's most recognized bootleggers, but after a few disputes, Vincent decided to step away and start his own gang. Soon, Vincent became famous for his quick and painful methods of getting rid of debtors and rivals. But he also became entangled in a nasty war with Schultz's gang, ending with the murder of Vincent's brother, Peter. This exposed the weak point of Vincent's growing gang. Even though he'd made a name for himself as an assassin and intimidator for hire, he had no idea how to run a proper business. Peter had been the one who oversaw those parts of the operation. Without him, Vincent was left to rule the gang with the only skill he'd ever excelled in, violence. Things went from bad to worse when Vincent accidentally killed a five-year-old child in early 1931. The scene was so chaotic that no one could really establish how Michael Vengali got caught in the crossfire. But as soon as Vincent was implicated in the hit gone wrong, he was blamed for it. Vincent had longed for notoriety, but he never wanted to become known as a child murderer. He now had a giant police target on his back. There was a reward out for his capture, and he had to remain unseen, hiding out in empty apartments and shady bars giving up the infamy he'd worked so hard to achieve. He dyed his naturally blonde hair black, grew a mustache, and started wearing horn-rimmed glasses. In the dark shadows of dusty speakeasies, Vincent Call was no longer recognizable. He laid low for a while, but it was tedious, waiting around for the police attention to die down. He didn't know what to do if he wasn't working. Somewhere in the city, Someone must have a job for him. So, in the midst of a citywide manhunt for his arrest, Vincent Call donned his new mustache and glasses and took on a meeting with Salvatore Maranzano. Maranzano was an Italian immigrant who had come to the United States soon after World War I, where he used his family's Italian mafia connections to build a bootlegging empire. Soon, Maranzano was one of the most powerful gangsters in New York, but he still wasn't satisfied. To increase his power, he declared war on Joe the Boss, Mazaria, who controlled a rival faction of the Italian-American Mafia. By April 1931, Joe the Boss was dead, and Maranzano was the undisputed leader of the entire Mafia in the U.S., He divided New York City's mafia into five separate families. Each family would have their own boss, and they would all answer to Maranzano, the boss of all bosses. This lasted for about five months, 
but the mobsters he had displaced began to talk amongst themselves. They decided to put personal and professional rivalry aside to take Maranzano down. The driving force behind this coup was Maranzano's own right-hand man, Lucky Luciano. He used to be a top aide for Joe the Boss Mazzaria and had been poised to take over his mafia faction one day. When Maranzano killed Joe the Boss, Luciano immediately turned his loyalty to Maranzano out of self-preservation. He made himself indispensable, but he never forgot or forgave Maranzano for destroying his gang, his mentor, and his chance at power. When the families came together to discuss getting rid of Maranzano, Lucky Luciano was the first one to step forward. He offered to eliminate him himself. Luciano was strategic, but he was not subtle or discreet. Maranzano easily found out what his right-hand man was planning. He needed to get rid of Luciano before Luciano could get rid of him, but he wasn't sure who in his ranks he could trust. There was only one man for the job, one man who everyone distrusted equally. His entire life, Vincent Call had operated outside of the criminal underworld's unwritten code of respect. He declared war on his former mentor, Dutch Schultz. He took in hit jobs for anyone, regardless of their affiliations. He'd kidnapped and killed members of just about every gang in New York City. But never before had his disregard for the order of the underworld been so evident as when he agreed to meet with Salvatore Maranzano, the most uniformly hated man in the Mafia. Maranzano and Call met in September of 1931, just a couple of months after the accidental child murder that pushed Call into hiding. He agreed to murder Lucky Luciano for $50,000, worth almost a million today. He'd get half in advance and half on completion, as usual. They agreed on the plan. Maranzano would invite Lucky Luciano to his office to discuss business. Call would arrive right after Luciano and kill him before he knew it was coming. But Luciano was not as clueless as they thought. He got wind of the situation pretty fast, though he never learned exactly who Maranzano had hired to murder him. As far as everyone knew, the legendary Vincent Call was still underground. On September 10, 1931, Vincent took his position in a shadowy corner of Maranzano's office building, waiting for Lucky Luciano to arrive. Luciano was late. The only people who'd passed by were a group of nondescript accountants. Maranzano waited in his office on the ninth floor. He planned to stall Luciano with meaningless business conversation until Call came in and killed him. Finally... There was a knock on the door, but it wasn't Luciano on the other side. It was the four accountants, and they were all armed. By the time he recognized them as Luciano's henchmen, it was too late. They pinned Maranzano to the wall, stabbed him repeatedly, strangled him, and shot him six times, just for the sake of it. Vincent heard the gunshots. He rushed up the stairs and ran into the accountants. He locked eyes with one of the men. Even under the dyed black hair and mustache, he recognized Vincent. 
The man told him there'd been a police raid and it was best to get out of the way. Vincent turned around and followed them out of the building. This was no longer his problem. He'd already gotten the first half of his payment. He was $25,000 richer without having to do a thing. But rumors of Call's involvement flew throughout the crime world. His allegiances, or lack thereof, were explicitly clear. As long as Vincent Call was out on the streets, no mobster was safe, no matter how powerful. They didn't have to worry for long. The manhunt that had started after Vincent killed five-year-old Michael Vengali still hadn't let up. And just five days after Maranzano's death, the New York police finally found Call hiding out in a hotel in the Bronx. They arrested him and most of his gang. As he stood in the police lineup, Call swore up and down that he had been in Albany for the past several months. He couldn't have committed any of the crimes he was suspected of. He refused to answer any questions without an attorney present. One day later, he was indicted by a grand jury for the murder. His attorney would arrive soon, but it would do him no good. His demise had already begun. Coming up, we'll follow Vincent's murder trial. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On October 4th, 1931, Vincent Call was arrested for the murder of five-year-old Michael Vengali. His trial began in December of that same year. By then, Call was prepared. He had hired the best lawyer that his bloody fortune could afford. That lawyer was Samuel Leibowitz, perhaps the best defense lawyer in the country. Earlier that year, he defended the Scottsboro Boys, a high-profile case where nine black boys were falsely accused of raping two white women. For Leibowitz, Call's case was run-of-the-mill. He thought that the prosecution had no case against him. He advised Vincent to play the innocent victim. Call claimed on the stand that he was miles away from the shooting scene and was being framed by his enemies. He would tear the throat out of the person who killed Vengali if he could. The case against Call soon fell apart. Even though the shooting had happened on a busy street, the prosecution had only found one witness willing to testify, a man named George Brecht. Leibowitz was able to prove that George not only had a criminal record and mental health problems, but he also made a living as a paid witness. He showed that Brecht had given similar testimony in a previous murder case in St. Louis. Brecht was dismissed, and without another eyewitness, the judge found Call not guilty by the end of the month. It was said that as Call was being released from prison, the police officers directly threatened him. This wasn't over. They were going to arrest him any time they saw him on the streets. Vincent knew very well that the cops on his case had a long history of corruption. 
New York Police Commissioner Grover Whalen used to receive $35,000 every month from gangster Arnold Rothstein. The police were more than willing to bend the rules to help their criminal friends. And they'd be just as willing to bend the rules to put an actual child murderer behind bars. They just needed to find or create probable cause to catch Vincent again. It wasn't just the cops that were after him. An assortment of mob leaders wanted in on the manhunt, too. After years of kidnapping and killing other gangsters with no regard for hierarchy or loyalty, he no longer had many allies left. The Hell's Kitchen Irish mob had been up in arms since Vincent kidnapped their member, Big Frenchy Demange, a few months earlier. The mob's leader, Oni Madden, had put out a $50,000 bounty on Vincent's head, about a million dollars today. Mob banker Billy Warren and restaurateur Sherman Billingsley, who'd both been held for ransom by Vincent's gang, were ready to take him down too. At one point, Dutch Schultz, his old mentor-turned-rival, actually walked into a police station in the Bronx and offered to buy a house in Westchester for whoever killed Vincent first. For years, every gangster in New York had been walking around with a potential target on their back, never sure when or why Vincent might strike. But now, the tables were turned. A few weeks after his acquittal, Call impulsively married his girlfriend, a fashion designer named Lottie Kreisberger. She'd been by his side through the whole trial, and she didn't just forgive him for his crimes, she loved him for them. Most of Vincent's gang was still behind bars, but he and Lottie organized a new gang. Running an assassination squad wasn't going to be easy anymore, but Vincent wasn't about to stop. Call was followed 24-7 by policemen and mobsters alike. By the start of 1932, he was thrown into jail again for openly carrying a gun. The officer that arrested him called him a baby killer. But with a simple phone call to his trusted lawyer, Samuel Leibowitz, Call was walking free again. Leibowitz advised him to lay low. He couldn't keep acting like he was untouchable. He certainly wasn't. Call slowed his business down for a while. He didn't take on any hit jobs that involved famous people or dangerous mobsters. But he continued to frequent his usual bars and speakeasies, which were also frequented by all the people that wanted him dead. He walked right into the Cotton Club, run by Oni Madden, the same Oni Madden who'd put a $50,000 bounty on his head and took his old place among the shadowy booths. He had hired a bodyguard, a Polish gangster that went by Fats McCarthy, whose reputation as a ruthless hitman was almost as big as Call's. With Fats McCarthy by his side, he felt perfectly safe. The other faces in the bar turned away. It's as if by showing his face, Call was mocking them, mocking the entire order of the underworld. Call didn't fully understand how serious the threat against him was. He knew everyone wanted him gone, but that only meant he was doing well, keeping them on their toes. Rivalries were part of what thrilled him about his profession. 
And if he wanted to keep working, he had to keep moving through the same speakeasies as his clients, even if the management wanted him dead. Oni Madden watched Call silently, stoically. He and everyone else knew that if they wanted to take down Mad Dog Call, they'd have to do it quietly, play nice for a while, move in secret, make sure his gang of assassins never found out who was behind it. Luckily, Call's location was never that hard to track down. He and Lottie changed locations constantly, but they tended to rotate between the same buildings in the same parts of town. All it took was a little patience to figure out where he'd be. On February 1st, 1932, that location was an abandoned apartment complex in the Bronx. Several of the city's mobs had banded together for the job. Their team of hitmen had figured out Vincent and his gang were staying there. When the moment was right, they stormed the building. They ran down the hallway and kicked down the doors. Most of the apartments were empty, but if anyone else was there, they opened fire indiscriminately with their pistols and submachine guns. There was no room for mistakes. They burst into one apartment, where a few members of Call's gang were playing cards. The gunmen started shooting. They didn't notice the room's other occupants, civilian friends, innocent women, and two babies. Three people were killed in the crossfire, two members of Call's gang and one other woman. Three more people were wounded. But Vincent Call wasn't there. They checked every room and he was nowhere to be found. Call showed up to the complex 30 minutes later, but the bullet-riddled bodies were still there. This was the second time in months that he'd evaded an ambush by mere minutes. This second brush with death woke him up. He decided it might be time to start listening to those who advised caution. The chaos of the shooting also doubled the efforts of the police to capture Call. He himself was blamed for the explosion of violence aimed at him. After all, if he could just play by the rules, none of this would be happening. After that incident, Vincent moved fully into the shadows. He traveled back and forth between apartments his wife owned throughout the city. They never stayed in the same place for more than a couple of days. If he ever went out in public, it was in the back corners of speakeasies and only with people he trusted. There weren't many of those left. Just his own gang, his wife Lottie, and his bodyguard, Fats McCarthy. But soon he'd discover he shouldn't have trusted anyone at all. Coming up, we'll explore the downfall of Vincent Call. Now, back to the story. By February 1st, 1932, Vincent Mad Dog Call had closely evaded two shootings and multiple felony charges. The police wanted him locked up. Every mob in the city wanted him dead. He was only 23 years old, and he was looking at an early retirement. After much hesitation, he finally agreed to go underground and disappear from the public eye. He avoided the illegal clubs and bars he used to frequent. He kept planning hit jobs for his gang. From whatever shadowy apartment he was hiding out in, 
but now his men were in charge of executing them. He didn't need the work financially. He had more than enough money left from his previous jobs. But he didn't know what else to do. Violence was the only thing he'd ever been good at. Vincent stayed underground for what felt like a lifetime. But it was really only a few days. Within the week, he was back to making appearances at clubs and speakeasies around town. The problem, of course, was that most of those clubs were owned by Oni Madden. Vincent knew Madden had been trying to get rid of him for nearly a year. But he never took it very seriously until Madden's doormen stopped letting him in. This Vincent couldn't abide. He couldn't keep his business running without access to those speakeasies. Where else was he supposed to meet his clients? He called Madden and told him as much. They tried to negotiate the terms of Vincent's appearances at his clubs, but Vincent was too fed up for diplomacy. Vincent told Madden that if he didn't hand over $50,000 by the next afternoon, he'd kidnap him. Madden said he'd call back tomorrow and give him an answer to that. Madden sure was going to give him an answer. The next call he placed was to Fats McCarthy, Vincent's trusted bodyguard. Either through bribery or threats, Madden convinced McCarthy to help set up his employer. McCarthy gave him a list of all the telephone booths Vincent had been using to make calls. He also told him that Vincent was staying at the Cornish Arms Hotel in Manhattan. It was February 8, 1932, only one week after the Bronx apartment shooting. Vincent and Lottie were at the hotel that night, plotting Oni Madden's kidnapping. Vincent may have made that threat in the heat of the moment, but he wasn't bluffing. At a little after midnight, Vincent went to the drugstore across the street to make a phone call. He wasn't armed, but he took Fats McCarthy with him. There were only a few people in the store. It was late enough, most of the city was asleep. Just to be safe, Vincent told McCarthy to sit at the lunch counter near the door to make sure nobody came at him with guns blazing. He walked to the phone booth in the back of the store and called Madden. He picked up almost immediately. Madden wasn't going to give Vincent the $50,000 he'd asked for. He also had no intention of letting Vincent back into his speakeasies. The conversation quickly escalated. Call changed tactics now threatening to kidnap Madden's brother-in-law if he didn't get the $50,000. Madden declined. He kept the conversation going, but he was calm and composed the entire time. While they were talking, three men in a dark limousine parked outside the store. Bo Weinberg, one of the most experienced assassins in Dutch Schultz's gang, and infamous gangsters Leonard Skarnicki and Anthony Fabrizio. Weinberg stayed behind and kept the car running. Skarnicki and Fabrizio stepped out and walked into the drugstore. Fabrizio went in first. He drew his gun and calmly told the customers to stay quiet. Fats McCarthy leaned over the counter and told the cashier, keep cool now. Call had his back turned, fully lost in his argument with Madden. He didn't notice the men approaching the phone booth with submachine guns drawn. He didn't notice until 15 rounds were fired through the glass. He died instantly. The gunmen walked out and took off in their limousine. 
A foot patrolman saw them fleeing. He hopped into a taxi and ordered the driver to follow the limousine, but it was too late. They got away. Fats McCarthy walked away from the scene, away from his former employer, who was slumped in the phone booth amid a pool of blood and broken glass. Lottie heard the sirens from the hotel across the street. She ran over to the drugstore, past the ambulance and policemen, and saw her husband dead. She screamed in agony. She wouldn't tell the police anything about who might have killed Vincent. And truth be told, they didn't care to press the matter. Vincent Call was gone, and he would not be missed. Vincent Call was buried at St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx, right next to his brother Peter, who'd been killed less than a year earlier. The parish priest refused to provide a funeral mass for Vincent. There would be no traditional Catholic ceremony for the fallen assassin. When a mob leader died, it was customary for every major mob boss to send flowers, including the one who'd sanctioned the hit. Vincent received an enormous floral wreath with a card that read, From the Boys. Dutch Schultz had signed it. The gunmen did, in fact, collect the $50,000 reward Madden and Schultz had put out for Vincent's murder. The police suspected Oni Madden's involvement, but he was never arrested. Within the next three years, every surviving member of the Call gang would be either killed or imprisoned. Lottie formed her own gang after her husband's death, but she was arrested six months later on weapons charges. She refused to leave prison after her sentence was up, afraid that Vincent's killers would be after her next. When she was forcefully removed, she disappeared and was never seen in New York City again. Fats McCarthy was killed by a group of unknown assailants in May 1935. Later that same year, Dutch Schultz was killed by the Italian Mafia. The Mafia was wrestling control of the city's entire crime industry, and Schultz was one of the last people standing in the way. Shortly after that, Oni Madden struck a deal with the Italian Mafia. He handed over all his properties and assets and fled to Arkansas, where he lived for the rest of his life. By the mid-1930s, a stronger connection had been formed between the city's once separate mob families. Although this network had existed for over a decade, the ties had been strengthened after they'd all pulled together to get rid of Vincent Call. Free from the chaos that had been sowed by Call and his gang, the city's Italian, Irish, and Jewish mobsters lived in relative cooperation. The era of random violence and bloodshed was coming to an end. In many ways, Vincent Call's life is the typical story of the rise and fall of the American gangster. He was an immigrant who came to this country looking for new opportunities and found them in the criminal underworld. He discovered his natural talent for intimidation and built an empire on it. But he took his violence so far even the city's other criminals couldn't abide it. Loyalties became blurry and his devotion to his work overtook any sense of caution or self-preservation. He lived hard, and he lived carelessly. And even though it cost him his life, he might be happy to know that almost a hundred years later, 
his name still evokes the image of someone ruthless, cold-blooded, and rabid. Someone with nothing to lose. He was, as Mayor Jimmy Walker once called him, a mad dog. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Jorge Molina and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.